Friends, you're listening to episode 445 of the Juice Box Podcast. Hey, guess who's back on the show, everyone? It's Erica Forsythe. You might remember Erica from back in November on episode 407, where she and I spoke about burnout, emotions surrounding diagnosis, and dealing with diabetes distress and constructive ways to prevent it from impairing function. Today, Erica is back, and we're going to focus a little more on supporting the people who are supporting people with type 1 diabetes. I just loved her the first time she was on, and... Uh, we decided there were some more topics that we could dig into. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Please always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by the Omnipod Tubeless Insulin Pump. Please go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box to find out more about the Omnipod and to see if you can get a free, no obligation demo sent directly to you. Spoiler alert, you can. Just go to the site, myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. Get that demo out to you today. The show is also sponsored by the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor. You can get started with that Dexcom G6 at Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. There's links in the show notes of your podcast player, links at juiceboxpodcast.com, and you can just type the words into a browser if you can remember them. My Omnipod, you can do it. Here's Erica. I really enjoyed when you were on the first time, and I thought, oh, this would be great. And then you had, you know, we were like, well, maybe we can do these other ideas. And I thought, oh, this is terrific. And then you kind of like, disappeared but it felt very anti your personality so i was like something <laughs> happened to that person um and then so you had surgery do you mind people knowing this oh no well i um it's another long story by the way i'm using a different headset is our sound okay you sound good yeah yeah you sound fine to me can you hear me okay okay, okay. yeah i can mm -hmm. um yes well it's you know it, Life still happens even when you have diabetes, as you know. And so I've had some knee, chronic knee issues, multiple surgeries, and I re-injured it, um, I think, shortly after we had our last um, podcast. Right. And so I had to deal with, I haven't had surgery yet, but it is coming. <laughs> well, I hope it goes well for you. A full full knee replacement is in my future, but just got to figure out the right timing with uh, Being with alive. my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's uh, I've I've seen some people go through it um, from a distance recently, and you know I think the uh, it's just the way you would expect, as far as I know. Like the you know the earlier in life you do it, probably the easier it's going to go. The beginning's not uh, quite as much fun as the end is, and then when it's over, they're like, "Huh, I can't believe how well this works." 
So yes, you know. yes, that is that is the hope for the you know the end game. <laughs> I like how you said, uh, even though you have diabetes, other stuff goes wrong. It really does feel sometimes when you're like something else happens. You're like, don't we like? Isn't there a limit to how much you get? And there's not. <laughs> you know, it's it's so true. But yesterday, I was talking with my husband and, and kind of talking and preparing up for this our next conversation and. I got a paper cut. <laughs> it's, it's like, come on, you know, <laughs> sometimes there's just, there's, you, there's, there's the diabetes and then there's still other issues that it can happen to your body physically, emotionally. And then you can get a paper cut and it could like set you over the edge. I mean, thankfully it did it for me yesterday, but I know it, it has in the past. Yeah. Um, and that's totally normal. <laughs> no, I know. It just, it's, there's that, you know, just when other things happen, you're just like, I feel like everyone should get a certain amount of stuff and I've got mine yes. already, you know, but yeah, uh, yeah, I've got my fair share. Yeah. You, you hit us. It's, it's almost like looking at the waiter when they come around with water and you're like, no, 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 you just, you just got us. Thanks. <laughs> so we're good. We're still right. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're full. We're full. Can Thank you, you keep your problems over there, please? We have our own. My name is Erica Forsyth. I am a type one diabetic will be almost 31 years living with diabetes this summer. I was 12 when I was diagnosed. Um, and I also have a younger brother with type one, but nobody else in my family um, has been um, diagnosed with it. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I uh, work as a school counselor, but also have a private practice specializing in supporting People of all ages and their caregivers um, living with diabetes from diagnosis onward. As we know, it it doesn't just end or or start or end at, at the point of diagnosis. Let me ask you a question about because this comes up a lot recently, and I don't know the answer. People uh, find therapy online now more than ever, I guess. Um, yes, but does the the therapist you find need to be in the same state that you live in? For insurance reasons, yes, you know, and I have had some uh, some people reach out from other states um, as a result of our first podcast, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, I am, I'm in California, and I'm licensed in California, and I'm insured in California. And but now that we're all doing telehealth, it it would feel like that would be a really easy and convenient way to meet people people's needs nationwide. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have. I am trying to figure out if there's a way that I can be insured uh, nationwide and or licensed. That I don't think that exists quite yet. But that sure would be lovely. Gotcha. All right. Well, California is still a pretty big place. So if you're hearing it Erica today and you you want to reach out to her and you live in California for the moment, how do they get a hold of you? I have a website. Thank you for asking. Okay. It's ericaforsyth.com. Cool. So E R I K A. F-O-R-S-Y-T-H.com. Thank you. L- listen, I don't think it's any, um, it won't come to any surprise to people that heard you the first time. I felt like we had a really nice, easy back and forth, um, you know, as the person who gets to make the judgments on the on the people who come onto the show. I just felt like <laughs> you really, you, I, we vibed well together and you really felt like you had a very kind of calm grasp of what you were talking about. And you had a couple of other topics you wanted to hit up. So you're back to do more. Can we start with supporting caregivers who of people who? Have- yes, I I was thinking that we could do that first uh, because as I you know meet with different clients, families, uh, you know caregivers are often reaching out to me 
for either support for themselves, but usually, you know, how to support their children living with it. But often I find that, you know, caregivers need their own individual support as well. Um, and I think there, there's the larger group of, you know, being a caregiver of someone with type one, but then I think there's even smaller subgroups within that category of parents who have, who have, you know, children are diagnosed in infancy or in elementary age years. And then there's the parents who have children who are diagnosed in their teen years, which we can talk about because that's a whole kind of beast in and of itself. And then kind of the aging out, right, from teen to early adulthood. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think we, we definitely could start with, you know, how to think about living as, as a caregiver with, with this diagnosis. I've been corresponding with somebody who's obviously information I'll keep private for like a year now. And mm -hmm. um, they're the parent of a teen. Um, and things were, you know, the, the teen wasn't taking it all that seriously, at least not as seriously as the parent was taking it. And uh, that parent told me that eventually they had to seek out like therapy for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. And then it came to a head and, um, and uh, the, this person just one time, one, I just eventually just couldn't take it anymore and said to the kid, like, you know, diabetes is going to kill me before it kills you. Mm -hmm. and, and I wonder um, how, how common that feeling is because it felt, like I could understand what she she was saying in the email. Um, so, what is the difference between being having your child diagnosed at a younger age versus other ages? Well, I think the the first kind of the answer would be well, in terms of how much control and authority you have over your child, mm -hmm. and just developmentally, um, where your child is, are they able to? Are they completely dependent on you as, you know, as obviously an infant or younger child that they are unable to either manage their diabetes care from, you know, whether you're doing finger pricks or CGM management, um, wearing a pump or not. Um, if your child is younger, I would say, you know, this is a rough <laughs> uh, guesstimate around maybe eight mm -hmm. or younger, or maybe even seven or eight or younger, then you are probably managing it as the primary caregiver completely um, from that includes, you know, reordering the supplies and changing out the sites as well as the day-to-day, -day, you know, management. Um, and then as you're getting into maybe early and elementary uh, or older, I guess like nine, I would say to 12, eight or nine to 12, maybe they're taking on more or showing some, levels of interest and wanting to be independent in some areas, whether it's checking their own blood sugar or um, having a discussion with you around carbs. And then obviously into, you know, preteen and teen where just naturally they are wanting to be more autonomous, more independent. Um, and to, if you take remove diabetes from the equation, they're, you know, just teenage years, they're wanting to make their own choices, um, feel that sense of independence. And then there's that pushback, right? With teenage years of, if, if they are showing signs of wanting to rebel, mm -hmm. then that often translates into, I don't want to take care of my diabetes or I want to fit in, you know, in, in preteen teenage years, children are wanting to fit in with their peers, be like their peers, do what their peers can do. And as we know, you, you can do that to a certain extent um, with diabetes, but Oftentimes it might look like ignoring, like I'm going to have this, this 
uh, bag of chips or this candy bar at the movies with my friends, um, I don't want to have to either leave to inject or take my blood sugar or pull out my pump. It's going to make all these lights or look at my CGM. So I'm just going to ignore that because I want to fit in. Mm -hmm. So those kind of just as a summary, I'd say of what, what it might look like as, as the child with diabetes, but then also how do you, how do you manage that as the caregiver is, is challenging on different uh, levels. And how does it impact you too, as the, as a person just, you know, I, 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 I say all the time and nobody, it's interesting, isn't it? Like if you look at the world as a whole, the likelihood of you being born, living and dying without having some sort of a medical issue is almost completely uncommon. Like it, you know, mm-hmm. that, that happens to very few people. But no one makes a baby and thinks, hey, I bet you when, you know, let's do this baby thing. And I bet you when it's three, it's pancreas will stop working. And then we'll just mm-hmm. take care of that. Or when it's 12. Or I bet you when it's 20, it's thyroid won't work anymore. Or you like you you have no preparation for that whatsoever. Um, and we see it as uncommon and burdensome when maybe we really should think of it as expected uh, to some level. You, you know, some something happening should be expected, but it's not how you feel. So is that different when a when a child's younger? Do you get that feeling of like you didn't get what you were promised? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I I from I mean I think from just speaking from also my my parents' perspective, having two children, you know, diagnosed with that we were older, but then from from clients that I work with, there's that I think that immediate sense of loss, right? Because maybe when it's an, if you're slightly older, say eight or ten you have some of those like prime years of, of quote enjoyment, right. Without having to think about this extra layer of management. Um, And so I would say, yeah, that's definitely a gosh, we're out of the gates that my child's one or two and he's barely talking or walking. And now we have to deal with this extra layer. And so I'd say it's probably even a stronger, maybe shock, grief, loss, um, and you know, all of, all of the emotions of of, of grief. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On on top of that, I expect the, the, you start prognosticating that there's going to be some sort of a loss for the child in the future. You know, the funny thing is too, if you understand how to manage your diabetes reasonably, I don't think there's uh, that much of a loss. You you know what I mean? Like you're a person who has diabetes. There's things you have to do. It's obviously sucks. And it's, but if you could take a long look at it, and I guess I'm in a unique pers- uh, perspective where I've spoken to so many people at every age, you know, right into their 60s, that what I would tell you is that overall, that, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a coin flip or not. Like, if you're just the kind of person who does well with, you know, stuff that comes up or you're not, but most people deal okay with it. When they don't do well, it's be, it, it generally ends up being because they've been given very bad tools or bad support or something like that. But the people who you know learned how to use their insulin or figured out how to eat that worked for their lifestyle had somebody helping them along the way. Those people generally live full lives. You, you know, like we we don't we're not in that part of diabetes anymore where people just die when they're forty because they have type one unless right. you know something significantly lacking in their in their care or you know i mean let's just say like there are some people just hit the genetic you know dumpster fire lottery mm-hmm. and then that, and that obviously mm-hmm. can happen so if i'm a parent i come into you and i say hey i've got my little one-year-old two-year-old five six seven-year-old has diabetes they're completely dependent on me and i can't take it 
like how do you how do you help a parent in that situation the dexcom g6 continuous glucose monitoring system helps you make better diabetes treatment and diabetes management decisions with zero finger sticks and no calibrations. The Dexcom G6 lets you see your glucose numbers with just a quick glance at your smart device. That could be Apple or Android, or with a Dexcom receiver. You can get alerted when your glucose levels are headed high or low, and you get to decide what high or low means by setting those alarms where you want them. You can also share your data with up to 10 followers. And the Dexcom G6 is covered by most insurance plans. To find out if yours is one of them, go to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. You want a Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. From my perspective, it gives you the information that you need to make great decisions about insulin at meals and your basal. It doesn't matter. You can see so much information from the Dexcom G6. You can look at it and go, you know, I think I need more basil in this spot right here. Or I bet you if I just put my insulin in here, then it would match up better with the spike and maybe less of a spike. That is all really visual. And it comes from the Dexcom. You're going to just, you're going to love it. I think it's my opinion. But I mean, if you didn't care about my opinion, you probably wouldn't be listening to the podcast. So I'd check it out. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. No pressure. Just go take a look. Next thing I think you should do, go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box to find out more, to learn more about the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump. And if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you're always hearing me say, go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. Get yourself a free, no obligation, non-working demo of the Omnipod today so you can try it on and wear it you know the whole thing right but guess what else you might find out about at the link it's possible you could be eligible for a free 30-day trial of the omnipod dash what 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 did i say a free 30-day trial i did i did you might just get a demo you might get a 30-day trial you gotta head over and find out who's who you know what i mean who are you in this fight there's it's easy like you get there you're like, I just want to check my eligibility or my coverage. You put in a little, you type your name. What kind of diabetes do I have? Do I have type one? Do I have type two? Some other kind. What's my current treatment plan? Male, female, date of birth, phone number, blah, blah, blah. I certify that I'm 18 years. It's going to take you 20 seconds. Click to go to page two. You're almost done. The next thing you know, bada bing, bada boom, you're finding out about your eligibility. Maybe you're getting a free no obligation demo that you can try on and wear for yourself. Maybe you're getting a free 30-day trial of the Dash. The Omnipod Dash for 30 days for freeze? Mm, you got to go find out right now. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. And because I've got some music left, why are you not at T1DExchange.org forward slash juice box right now? Do it. Get over there. Get on there. Do your thing. You ask her a couple of questions. You're helping people with type 1 diabetes and research. You're helping research. Research. <sighs> right there from your couch, from your phone, from your laptop. You don't have to go to a doctor. There's nothing to do. It's completely HIPAA compliant. You're helping people with type 1 diabetes. Take you 10 minutes. Tops. It's anonymous. T1DExchange.org 
forward slash juicebox. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juicebox. Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. Links in your show notes. Links at juiceboxpodcast.com. Here comes Erica. Oh my God, that was a lot. Sorry. Here we go. How do you help a parent in that situation? Well, first of all, I think it's if we were to pull back a little bit, like when you a diabetes diagnosis inserts itself into, you know, quote, pre-existing conditions. And I know we think about that like as a medical term, but you as a family unit, or if you're a single parent, a single caregiver, you there are already issues going on in your life, right? There might be marital stressors, there might be job or financial stressors. It, it might, you might be diagnosed in the middle of a pandemic. There might yeah. be um, other concerns with if you have other children, the sibling dynamics. You might have um, either really successful, solid, healthy family communication patterns or, or not. And so upon diagnosis, all of those things that have been with you, either individually as a person in your own health journey, um, as well as your family, um, are still there, right, upon a diagnosis. And so sometimes we'd like to think that, that oh, my gosh, my child is diagnosed, and now every, all of my other, you know, challenges or concerns are going to fall to the wayside, but they don't, and they creep back in immediately upon diagnosis. Maybe all of the focus is on there, and you're surviving out of adrenaline and shock, um, and you're pouring all of your resources and time and energy into that, into your child. Um, but slowly all of those other, you know, pre-existing conditions or challenges that you have been dealing with kind of reemerge. And I, I think that, um, you know, as a caregiver, your, your child does look to you and how to respond to this diagnosis and, and it's okay if you're struggling, right? Because your, your child may take it all in stride. I mean, particularly, I mean, a one or two year old the child doesn't really know essentially what's happening. And that's going to, that child is, that's going to be normal as the child grows up. Right. For an older child, they might not think it's anything different. They might've seen other friends with CGMs on their arms or, you know, the, the stigma around all of that is definitely thankfully going down. Um, and the hardest part might be coming to terms with your own feelings about it as a caregiver. Um, about, you know, thinking, gosh, what does this mean for my child? Is my child going to not be able to do all of the things that I had envisioned for them? Um, I think I shared, you know, thankfully things have changed dramatically in 30 years, but when I was diagnosed, the doctors told my parents, like she might not be able to play sports. And I, I ended up playing collegiate volleyball. She might not be able to have children. Um, and so there, I think there was a time when there was that sense of loss and despair for your child that you were grieving for them and for yourself as yeah. the parent. Thankfully, the messaging and the data <laughs> has shifted. Um, I have had two healthy children um, and I was able to do those things. And because of now all of the new, um, you know, the new science and the new um, products on the market, you can even live a healthier life than I did 30 years ago um, as a child and, and preteen and teen. Um, so anyway, so going back to your question, the parent comes in, their one or two year old has been diagnosed. I would first allow them the space to grieve. Like what, what are they, they probably are having that sense of loss. I had expectations of having a healthy child 
that might not look, and, and, and as we know, you can be healthy with type one, but without living with a chronic illness, mm-hmm. they might have to deal with and have questions about what are some myths that they've heard, right? Is my child going to be blind? Are they going to lose a limb? Are they not going to be able to do X, Y, or Z? Um, so dispelling some myths might be something that we would do. Um, and so you just give first initially just giving them some space to grieve. I see, I see online when people just want to see an athlete, a professional athlete who has type one diabetes, because that seems like the gold standard of, of moving around and they're doing it. So, oh good. That's a great feeling. I, if that person could do it, then somebody else could do it. It, it does seem to be a lot of fact finding and, you know, backing up your fears with stuff that makes that alleviates them or tries to support problems you're having. Um, but what happens if, if you're if you're the adult and you're a person who just doesn't have any more bandwidth or their coping skills aren't you know gonna gonna lend to this situation, do you just pick something in your life and and eliminate it? Like do you do you just go, okay, I used to I don't know, I used to so purses in my fair, my spare time, but I don't do that anymore. You know, like mm-hmm. I, how do you, like what happens when the cap, when you're full all the way to the cap and then something like this comes in? I mean, what, what do people do to find that space they need to wrap their heads around this? Cause it takes a long time to figure out diabetes. It does. Yeah. I think that, and that's an excellent point too, is that it, it acknowledging that, I might not understand, I mean, how to, how to manage my child's diabetes initially. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're dealing with your own personal grief, if that's, you know, the case about what it means for your child to have diabetes. And then you're probably feeling isolated because as, as we know, it's, you know, it's, it's very rare. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, a type one community is so tight knit and probably most chronic illness communities are very tight knit because you don't really understand it unless you are either living with the type one or you're caregiving for someone. Um, and so I think acknowledging that, gosh, I'm, I'm feeling isolated. I am feeling distressed. Um, I'm feeling anxious about what this means. Um, obviously reaching out for support, whether it's one-on-one therapy, listening to, you know, your podcast, finding support groups, in your community, um, and if they aren't there, asking your your child's doctor for um, creating your own. Mm-hmm. I think being in a support group as a caregiver is really important if you are struggling um, and feeling like, "Gosh, I have no more bandwidth. I, I've reached my limit in terms of providing care for my child." That is signaling that you are in distress. You know, mm-hmm. um, whether it's your own personal distress, including dealing with the diabetes distress. Um, and it's exhausting. And so I think reaching out and finding the support one-on-one listening to other podcasts and finding support groups for you, not just for your child is really, really important. Yeah. It gets you to that spot where I don't know what psychologically it does for you to accept something, but it stops so much inner turmoil um, that just 
I'm not saying giving yourself over to it maybe is the wrong way to say it, but just the idea of, you know, cause you'll see people forever like, well, there must be a cure for this. And they'll, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll just drive themselves crazy looking for it as if there was a cure for type one diabetes and the 1.8 million people living with it are unaware of it. But the newly diagnosed person is like, no, obviously it exists. It's just that feeling of like putting off the inevitable, which is accepting that this is happening, but there's such a calm that comes after the acceptance. Yes, yes. And and I think it's hard to know what comes first. Like if you are feeling confident and competent in managing your child's diabetes, then maybe the acceptance comes after that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the acceptance comes, okay, this is this is what we have in our life. We are not going to let this stop us from doing the, the achieving the goals we want for our family and for our child. Uh, we are going to accept this and we're going to put our head down and we're going to figure this out together. Mm-hmm. And then that calmness and acceptance that may then lead to the finding, finding what you need to get your diabetes, your child's diabetes management and, you know, getting into stride with it, I guess. Yeah. And I don't know if one has to come before the other, but I think I totally agree that the acceptance piece is pivotal. Um, and it, you might be, you might accept it right in the, as the get go. You might just be someone who could handle, um, kind of this, this trauma. I know we talked about that in our other, our first episode, mm-hmm. um, that kind of the Trump traumatic experience that a diagnosis brings, but, and then you might accept it and you might be in working well with your child and your child's, um, care team. And then you, there might be another transition, like such as puberty or the child's sick. Um, and you might hit a bump in the road and you might experience some distress and that's okay. It's not like, okay, we're, we've accepted it. We're, we're good. We're managing it. We know how to deal with this and we're good to go. So to be gracious to yourself and your child that there will, there will be, it will you know, ebb and flow in terms of your acceptance in, you know, yeah, in your relationship with diabetes, well, yeah. it's fascinating. As your kids get older, it's like you're a, a, an employer, and you have to hire the right person for a job. And you know, like you said in the beginning, the kids are—it's all on you, right? So the kids aren't involved, and they hit those years where they're like, "Well, I might want to help a little bit." Then you look at them, and you're like, "Why would I hire a 12 year old to take care of my son?" You, you know, like <laughs> I know you are you, but but. I, you're not the right person to be making these decisions. Then people have that fight where they don't want to hand it off. I have to admit that I don't, you know, I'm happy to give over Arden's, you know, management to her slowly, but I was never in a position where I thought I'm happy to trade her five, five, a one C for an eight, a one C while she's figuring this out for the next two years. So Mm -hmm. that, that wasn't a trade I was willing to make. Um, but it's just tough because you look down and you're like, well, this isn't the person who should be in charge of this. This kid's 14, doesn't know anything. He can barely remember which way's up. He just wants to play PlayStation, like that kind of stuff, which then translates into when they're teens. And it's even worse because now they actually, they think they know something. They don't even doubt themselves anymore, which is fascinating, right. you, you know? Um, and then there you are in that situation where some people run into where their kids don't doubt themselves, don't understand how to manage their blood sugars quite as well. And now they're creating what could potentially be dangerous situations either for themselves short term or long term. And you as the parent are set back and going, I can't let this happen. It's such a stressful, a stressful thing to see a thing that you can fix that's impacting your child, the thing you probably love most in the whole world. 
and then you can't impact it because they're the blockade to you impacting it. It's a weird dynamic where they are both the person, the the the, the focus of your love and concern, and the and the problem at the same time. Like the reason you can't get to that love and concern. I don't. I didn't mean problem, but they're they're almost like the roadblock and the destination. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And I think there's a reason why I often, I mean, I'd say the majority of families that I work with are the kind of the newly diagnosed families mm-hmm. within, you know, one month to, you know, six to 12 months and, and then parents and, and with teens, yeah. um, because those are probably the more challenging seasons. Uh, and yes, I mean, I think, it's going to happen, right? Teens are going to want to rebel to a certain extent or find, as we said, that autonomy or independence. And yet, you know, we research has shown that positive, there are positive results when parents continue to be involved somehow in your child's diabetes management during the adolescent years. Yeah. And what one of my mentors used to say like, gosh, wouldn't it be great if you could just saran wrap the diabetes part of their lives as teens with, within their relationship with their parents, just to protect that, like, let them go do whatever else they want to do as a teenager. But can we just somehow protect that aspect of their lives? Because it, it, it does happen where teens either want to deny it or don't want to manage it or want to manage it themselves. And then there's consistent, you know, 300s, and they think they're doing a good job or they don't want to show the numbers. I and mean, I, I, I lived that for a period of time myself. Um, and the ultimate, I mean, I feel like if you are a parent with a teenager at this point and you're experiencing this friction and this conflict of a teenager saying, gosh, I, I don't want you to deal with this. I'm going to do this by myself. I mean, I think I know you, you have set up a different, um, relationship with your daughter. And I think it would be wonderful. I know you just had a, 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 um, a gal on, I just listened to who was, was a teenager. And now I think she's 18 who took it on herself and is managing just great and has been very independent yeah. and wanting to maintain those healthy, um, habits. Um, I would say sit, sitting down with your, with your teen and say, okay, in this, this category of your life, your diabetes we are still going to, whether, I mean, it, it's also different, right? With the, with the CGM where you could look at on your app um, to see where your child's numbers are. If they aren't, if they refuse to wear CGM and that happens, then it's finding out, okay, we are going to look at your meter once a week or once, you know, at the, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. but you get to have control and agency in your life in these categories. And finding out what it, what does that mean for them? I mean, they're going to want to have sleepovers. They're going to want to do after school sports. I mean, a lot of this stuff isn't relevant at the moment, given the pandemic. But that obviously, hopefully, that normal light, normalcy will return. They're going to want to go to birthday parties or parties and general parties. And finding out how can we protect this aspect of their life and come to some sort of agreements but also giving them the opportunity to feel like they have control and agency in their life in other aspects that you both agree on that there, you know, there's a compromise there. I think you have to understand that in every 
interpersonal relationship, there is a line that you cannot push the other person over because if you do, there's just no coming back from it for some reason, or it's difficult to get back from it. So, so I'm, I'm constantly thinking with my children, like I'm balancing doing what's right for them with teaching them how to manage for themselves without pushing them away, which I guess would be a nice old fashioned way of saying what I just said, because once (laughs) they're away, that's the, what, whatever they leave with that day. And you don't want them to leave in an adversarial thing. Like I want my kids to walk out the door with a bag over their shoulder thinking, I can't believe I'm moving out. Like that's what I'm looking for. Right. Not like, Hey, go to hell. I'm out of here. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and so when that happens, when you, when you split that day, however it happens, You've taken them about as far as you get to take them. And then and so mm-hmm. if if they're gone too soon, then they're a bird falling out of a nest that can't fly yet. And and that doesn't stop them from leaving. You know, so right. I just think that there's a way to move slowly towards that stuff. And you have to be able to look up once in a while, see that your kids like rubbing up against something. And without letting them feel like they're in control, you know what I mean? Like there's a power struggle too with parenting. Mm-hmm. You, you can't kind of mm-hmm. let go of all of it, you know, um, without letting them feel like they're pushing you around. You have to almost quietly back off in your mind. Like I have something else to say. This is not the time to say it. I'll wait for another opportunity. I just, I'm, I, I, I believe in that. Uh, and I, and hopefully it's going to help me. My, my son's um, 20 and it looks like he has Hashimoto's out of nowhere all of a sudden in the last couple mm. of months. And it's impacting him. And we're trying to get all of his levels together and, and, and help him out. Um, and one of the things we've done is we've gotten his, his vitamin D level up and his iron mm-hmm. level up. And so the other night I said, hey, did you remember your vitamins? Which he's been great about so far. And he's just frustrated because some of the side effects of this haven't gone away yet. And he's like, they, yeah. don't, they don't help anything. And I was like, no, it took us two and a half months to get your vitamin D and your iron up, they help. And he got, he brusked a little bit. And what I was going to say next was, yo man, you know, if you do one sit up today, that doesn't give you a a six pack. And six months from now, when you have a six pack, it's because you did the sit ups every day on the way to it. And now that you have it, if you want to keep it, you need to keep doing it. This is what I was going to say to him. And instead I just went, yeah, that's cool. We'll talk about it later. And because uh-huh. <laughs> I just was like, this is it. If I push him here, I'm going to lose him on this topic. And I and I can't afford to lose him on this topic. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. So knowing, knowing your, the kind of the boundaries, <laughs> when to push and how far. Um, and I, and I think you also touched on, you know, as a teen, it's, you, there's instant gratification that they want and need. And it's so challenging to think about the long-term complications, implications of, of poor management. Um, and so every day it's, you know, yeah, I I want this candy bar with my friends and I'm, I don't feel like bolusing or injecting for it. And you're not, they're not sitting there thinking, well, you know, if I keep doing this every day for the next two years, I might have complications. Um, and, and, and I think just as you clearly exemplified sometimes reminding them of that isn't necessarily important. It's not the right way to go. No. Yeah. And when when they're little with, you know, to bring it back to diabetes, when they're little and you mess up a bolus and their blood sugar goes up, well, you work really hard to get it down. You hug them, you do all the things you do, you know, when they're eight, nine, or, you know, when they get into that 12, 13 and you do it again now, like, Oh, they're sitting on the bench. They can't play because they're dizzy. All these things hit you as failure as the parent, like you're like, Oh, I, I messed this up. I'm going to kill them. I'm the reason they're not going to enjoy soccer, you know, like whatever it ends up being. 
And then all of a sudden when they're older, it's interesting because it they're it's the first time that they can turn it back on you. It's like when they realize you're not perfect. You know what I mean? Which happens in mm-hmm. every parental mm-hmm. relationship. The one day the kid right. wakes up and goes, oh, this guy doesn't know everything, does he? You, you know, and then God forbid you're wrong or you get into your late 40s and you have like a moment where you can't think of a word. They're just it's like watching a lion go after a, a gazelle with a broken leg. I, I see my kids look at me <laughs> like, like, oh, he's not perfect. Now's our chance. You know, <laughs> and, right, uh, right. Right. But all of a sudden you're trying to do the right thing. And maybe, and for a lot of people, you don't know what the right thing is. You don't know what the tools are. You don't know how to manage your insulin right. You're just trying your best. And over and over again, it's it's not going well. And your kids start to think, she doesn't understand this diabetes at all. And mm-hmm. I don't understand it. So we're screwed. And that's and then that can you can get to that spot. And that's why I'm just such a huge proponent of understanding how insulin works. Because it gives you oh, yes. it gives you a chance in all these things. Um, and it, and it gives you a chance to have some free time where blood sugars aren't always bouncing around and you might actually be able to think about paying your electric bill or going for a walk or doing one of the things that's going to keep you sane or, or balanced. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You're not, not responding. You're not responding to the roller coaster. You just know, okay, we're, we are as stable as possible. I'm doing the best I can. And now I can go take care of myself. hundred percent. Yes. Have you ever seen the movie 1917? Uh, no. Okay. okay. So in a nutshell, it kind of doesn't matter. I think it's like World War One, <laughs> and and there's like there's like uh you know it's a road movie, but in a war, guys got to get from one place on foot to another place. It's uh-huh. just adrenaline the whole time, and sometimes that's what being a parent of somebody who has a chronic illness feels like to me. Like somebody just came into my life one day. I was just there doing my thing, and they were like, "Hey, you're on a foot race now to the end." And you have to run constantly because if you stop, something's going to kill you. Like you just have to keep going. And there is mm-hmm. going every time the scene changes, something different is going to be there that feels like it's trying to get you. And you have to run around it, jump over it or kill it and keep going. And that just is how diabetes feels to me. Like I remember having the conscious thought that my job is to get my daughter to the longest, healthiest life possible. And I never thought about having kids that way prior to the day she had diabetes, mm. you know? And, and that is an exhausting narrative yeah. to live with, particularly if you are not feeling like you're, you have a sense of, you know, competency around it or confidence, you know, and how to manage it. Yes. Right. Right. And so at, at some point, I worked out the things I worked out, which then lessened that feeling. And it's it's become less and less and less over time to where I still feel like that's my goal, but I no longer feel like I'm running through 1917 Germany for my life anymore. Right. It, it, right. So, and 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 I I really do um I really do believe that partly that's community that did that for me. I think it's part mm-hmm. it's ver- a big part just understanding how insulin works. Because then you start getting what you expect and there's not that like theoretical stress. Like you almost like put insulin in and then start wondering if you did it wrong. And then and when that happens three times a day, you're 24 hours a day believing you've messed something up and you're always living in that anger. Um, you know, and then if you're married, one of the parents likely has a, a firmer grasp on diabetes than the other, which can mm-hmm. help, which makes you resent the other person for not helping you. And you know, oh, it's just there's so much. Gonna, but you're, what you're saying is, is that if you're a parent of a child with type one at any age, 
you really need a place to go, no matter where it is, to feel normal, to hear some other people who are doing okay, who are maybe a little ahead of you on the journey, a place where you yes. can rant and rave and scream if you need to, and then kind of come back out and reset and give yourself, what did you call it, Grace? Yeah, grace and grace and space to, you know, do what you need to do. And if you are the primary caregiver, um, and I know that that works for a lot of families mm -hmm. because there's not the the confusion that I think you shared recently on a podcast that, you know, you you went to the store and you just assumed that that someone else would be watching or managing or helping blood sugars. Um, but I think that that assumption is also exhausting. And so I think if, if you're the primary caregiver and you are feeling all of those things that we've talked about, the burnout, the isolation, the guilt or shame around, I don't know what I'm doing or, or if I made a mistake to realize that you're not alone and to, to yeah, reach out. If you, if you don't have, um, if you don't know anybody in your circle, um, I think that's to, to reach out to your, to your do child's doctor to say, are there other parents, you know, with children around my age, my children, my children's age mm -hmm. that we can connect with because they, they know they have the data um, because the isolation piece I think is big. And then you isolation can make you feel like not only that you're alone or that if then that, then your thoughts can be like, and I'm doing it wrong and I'm a bad parent and that just kind of can, you can dig a hole really quickly with when you're feeling alone and that. Um, can happen to your kids too. And it, the, one of the, yes, it's funny when people come on the show and they've heard the show um, and it's not everybody, but it, it's, I used to think it was really heavily like towards the people who were like, oh my God, I learned how to use insulin. That's been so valuable for me because I see that as the, the most valuable piece of the podcast. Yes. But it's not true. What I hear most from people is, I never knew another person with diabetes. This show mm -hmm. gives me a sense of community. All those things you just said, it ends up being so much more important to the person who lives with the diabetes than you might understand. Like, like when a parent looks for community, they might look for support, advice, you know, that kind of stuff, pat on the butt kind of stuff. But when a person with type 1 looks for community, the community they want is similar, but not the same. It, it's what they need is to just not feel isolated, just like you said. Yes. And it's such a bigger piece than a parent not feeling isolated. I don't know why I think that. I don't think I have that thought completely fleshed out yet. But um, community means different things depending on what side of the syringe you're on, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you <know>? well put. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that, yeah, the, the community piece, yes, for the the person with the diabetes to know they're not alone. They're not this, you know, strange person and, and to hear tips and tricks, but then the, and then the caregiving piece to also yeah feel either encouraged or acknowledged and to decrease that isolation. Um, but also just a place, I mean, there, if you can't find a caregiver group specifically for type one, there are just general caregiver support groups out there mm -hmm. that might bring together a variety of people, you know, caregiving for their spouse with cancer or whatever the chronic illness might be, just to to have that sense of community, to know you're not alone in, in a lot of those similar emotions and triggers that you might be feeling okay. as the caregiver. So my last question, I have yeah. one last question on this is, 
that's that's all great for people who are are willing to do that. Um, and yeah. you know, like when I talk about how people eat on the show, I always say, like, look, it's probably easier to have diabetes and eat very low carb, but most people aren't going to do that. So let's teach them how to use their insulin so they can live the life that they want to live. And similarly. I think therapy is a great idea, but a lot of people don't do it. A lot of people drink mm-hmm. instead or walk out back and cut down a tree with a chainsaw and then cut it up in little tiny pieces and then kick it around. Are, are, what, what do people do who aren't going to seek out community, that aren't going to go for therapy? Are the, I mean, I have to be honest, that little breathing thing on the Apple, on the iPhone is uh-huh. great. like deep breathing really is relaxing. Um, but what, what can people do so they don't slip off and... And become a caricature of a of a sad person. Yes. Well, I think oftentimes you might not even realize it as a caregiver that you are experiencing burnout. Oftentimes I hear someone who might come in to my office and they'll say, well, you know what? My spouse noticed that I was talking about how tired I was or how I wasn't, I wasn't doing the things I used to do that I really enjoyed. Or I um, am feeling helpless and I'm talking about that. Or maybe, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm drinking more coffee or, or drinking more wine, or I'm not, I'm withdrawing from my friends and family. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, and, and oftentimes you might not even realize that that has happened. And so it, it sometimes takes someone on the outside to kind of reflect back, I, I, you know, in a caring, loving way, maybe it's time for you to get help. But if you aren't, if you aren't at the point of, being able to reach out because that does happen. Yes. Obviously deep breathing, um, to do the things, try and reflect back on, okay, what was one thing that I used to do that I enjoyed before my child was diagnosed, whether that was, I used to go on walks every morning or I used to yeah do this certain activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think reflecting, if you're at that point where you feel like your, your hands are in the air, you are exhausted and you don't even have the energy or desire to to go to a support group or to meet with a therapist to think back okay what did i used to do pre diagnosis that i enjoyed and slowly maybe integrating that asking for a break for an afternoon or once a day or yeah one once a day or once a week from being the primary caregiver and doing that thing, whether it's exercise or deep breathing or meditation um, or meeting up with a friend. Can I share two things? That, that that's where I would start. Yeah, yeah. please. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, one of these is embarrassing. I'm gonna start with the one that's not embarrassing. How's that sound? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so during the pandemic, I've taught myself to uh, make barbecue uh, to make pizza from like the dough to the scratch to how to cook it like a real like Neapolitan pizza. Well, because I just have this time, I don't know what to do with. And then at Christmas, um, Kelly gave me a a drone. It's just this little thing. It's a very small one. It's not, it's not very expensive at all. Um, but I found that first of all, I was scared of it. Like my, I was scared to use it. It's something I've talked about for years. Like, Oh, I want to try to fly a drone one day. That's all I said. But it turns out that my spatial awareness is what I was scared of. I was afraid that what would happen when I was pointing one way and the drone was going another way that I wouldn't have the coordination to deal with that. And so I practice in an open field, you know, and what I've learned over the last couple of weeks is that once the drone's up in the air and it's moving, it's the only thing I'm able to think about or the drone will crash on the ground. And there's and I've never been a person to stop thinking about other things. And so just one thing 
that was not life or death to anyone, right, has really changed. And I will find myself running outside in the middle of the afternoon when I have an hour just to put that thing in the air for five minutes just because I come away with some sort of a relaxed feeling when it's over. Well, and it's something that you are completely in control of, you know, that, um, I mean, well, also, it also gave me this idea, like if it, like, cause it can go up in the air and your first thing is like, what if I, what if it crashes and you mm-hmm. actually have to let go of that to do it? It's almost like not being afraid of insulin anymore. Like, you, you know, like, oh, I bolus and it goes up and I know I should use more, but I'm afraid until you just go, ah, hell, I'm going to use the amount it needs. Until you say to yourself, if this thing falls out of the sky, that's the price of doing business if I want to fly a drone. And so once you let go of it, it's completely free. Now, my other thing, and I don't know how many people will take me up on this, um, but when I'm completely alone, which I used to find myself a lot, and I don't much anymore. I guess we mo- most of us don't feel, our, yeah. feel that alone <laughs> yeah. anymore. Um, when I have a problem, I f- talk it out in my head but there are times that I feel I don't realize it and I'm thinking of something in my head and then all of a sudden I'm alone in my house and I'm talking about it out loud. And I've come to realize that it's nothing different than sitting down in front of a, a microphone to make a podcast where there's no guest. And I just yes. I find it easier to talk through things if I can hear it. Almost like at the end of um when I after I wrote my book, it was supposed to be turned in on a certain day, and I remember sending the publisher uh, a note and saying, just Can I have it for one extra day before I give it to you? And the last thing I did was read it out loud to myself because for some reason, hearing it in my head and hearing it out loud were two different things. And I don't know if that's valuable or not, or if I'm crazy, but those two things help me like focusing on something. that's not my life for a little while, giving yourself over to that. And sometimes I talk to myself when I'm, but not to myself. I'm I don't know how to put it. I'm not talking. You're just you're, like, kind of, you're verbally processing out loud. Yes, I'm not going. Hey, Scott, and Scott's yeah. not answering yeah. in a slightly different voice. <laughs> it's not happening like that. I, it's almost well, like it's I'm just, explaining to something to someone who's not there. Yes, yeah. and and hearing yourself say it out loud probably achieves um, a lot of things, but it could be calming. You're releasing. You're getting it out of your brain and out. Say, I mean, a similar. Um, exercise would be, you know, writing it down, journaling to get whatever that is out onto paper, then you can see it. And maybe for some, like, it sounds like for yourself, it's helpful to, for you to say it out loud and then to hear it. Yeah. Do you have any idea it. Mm-hmm. how often this happens to me? And in the middle of it, I think, oh, shit, I was wrong about that. Like you can actually, <laughs> you just think something you held like so dear. And then you're like, oh, I'm not right about that. Damn it. <laughs> and, and I don't know. It just, that's what works for me. But I just want people to do um, something for themselves because your kid getting diabetes can't just be the start of your life or death run across World War One. And then when you get to the end, yes. somebody pats you on the ass and goes, wow, good job. And then you drop over dead because you just used the last 60 years doing it. I just, you know, it can't be like that. And yes. And I would add, you know, and I'm so grateful that you shared what those two things that work for you. I think oftentimes caregivers might feel like if they take a break from caregiving, something's going to happen to their child. And that this, this fear of like responsibility and, uh, and guilt around what if, what if I leave the house for 30 minutes, is my child going to have a, a seizure or is going to go really high? And the, the chances are probably not, 
but even so, I think they're they're going to be okay for that short amount of time. And it doesn't have to be a long break. I think finding those windows of time, like for you, you had an hour to run out and, and do the drone. It could be 10 minutes to say, you know what, I, I'm going to go do my 10 minute walk around the block. Yeah. Um, but finding those moments to take care of yourself, to step away from the diabetes um, is really, really crucial. Yeah. I want to say that take it from me. I was the person who used to think I didn't like sleep's not as important for me. I thought after Arden got diabetes, um, it all of this will catch up to you at some point if you don't take care of it. It yeah. you are not going to skate through. Like, don't be the person who's like smoking. That doesn't give me lung cancer. It gives everybody lung cancer eventually. So you like you know you're not the special one who doesn't need to sleep eight hours or um, you know can can operate on nine pots of coffee for the rest of their life. It, it just doesn't work that way. You have to find the balance, <laughs> yeah. you know, do you agree? Absolutely. Cool. Yes. Do you agree um, that and, and used- it might feel, sorry, go ahead. I, I No, I'm sorry. You finish and I'll say what I was going to say. Oh, I say, I, I, I agree because, but the, in the initial stages, there is that fear of, I can't, I can't leave my child. And, 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 and maybe that feels like in the, in the first couple of months, that might feel true and is true, but to realize that, yeah, that, that is not sustainable yeah. um, and to involve other people um, as needed. No, no. Yeah. In the beginning of the apocalypse, we're all running and screaming, but at some yeah. point you yes. got to find a building to hide into and let the zombies walk around outside while you chill out. That's all. It's <laughs> yes. very simple. Now, here's the bigger problem. You came on to talk about two things in the hour that we booked and now 50 minutes later, we're on to the second thing. <laughs> so, um, well. What do we do? You know, we, we, well, we were, um, I tried to integrate a little bit. I know we were also talking about just, you know, teenage years. And mm-hmm. I feel like we integrated that a little bit into our conversation. We did, yeah. Um, but if we want to dive deeper, um, perhaps we, we can do that another time. Or if there are questions that come up from your audience, specifically in other topics, we could do that too. Well, I am all for having you back on. So if you're up for it, I'm up for it. Um, it's just, you, uh, you're like my, um, you're like my emotional Jenny, like to me. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's a nice compliment. (laughs) I enjoy enjoy being here and and chatting with you and hopefully, you know, helping, um, those who are out there listening and I'd love to be back. Seriously. Um, I want to wish you a ton of success with your knee surgery. I know you don't know when you're doing it yet, but, um, if you ever want to do a podcast on painkillers, uh, you let me know. (laughs) Okay. Because, <laughs> okay. Because I want to be like Erica. that would be interesting. <laughs> Erica, what should a family do? With they should shut up. Okay. That's all. <laughs> oh no. No, no. no. Not even under drugs would you say that? Uh, but, no. <laughs> give me your web address again. EricaForsyth.com. And for now, you need to be in California if you want to talk with Erica. But um, yes, through this pandemic, I've just spoken to too many people who are struggling in ways that uh, a lot of us can't imagine. And that for each one of them, speaking to who somebody has been what's helped them so far, um, you know, so, and there's just no shame. And I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't break your arm and go, I'm not going to go to a doctor. This will probably heal on its own. You, you know, like if you if you have a problem that you can't deal with on your own, you go to a person who can help you deal with it because it's just, it just when it goes wrong for somebody like psycho when psychological issues go wrong for somebody they go real they can go really you can just get lost and yeah like a spiral mm-hmm. yeah when i there's a couple of people i'm thinking of that i've spoken to i i i don't even know how they got 
back again. It's it's a triumph to to get back again. And th- you know the truth is they all did it with support uh, of of one or multiple people that helped them along. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, and that's really the goal of, of therapy for, you know, from my perspective is restoring that hope, you know, and, and, and healing and, and growth that can occur in an individual and family system. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that you, uh, that you're doing this one day, you know, years from now, I'll actually talk to you about your diabetes. Like you're just like, like you don't know anything about this other stuff. I, I I just said it to Jenny the other day. I said, one day we should like interview you like you're a person and not like Jenny a CDE. And she's like, I am a person. And I was like, yeah, we're going to do that one day. And she's like, okay. So uh, <laughs> I, yeah, happy, happy to do that too. Cause yeah. yeah, I'm also, I'm also living with it and it, and I understand very much all the challenges. Yeah. yeah. Before I let you go. Yes. Is it important for someone or not important? What's the, how do I want to ask this? Is it, is it, extra value added for my therapist to have type one if I'm in there talking about type one? Or do you think that a therapist that doesn't have it can do it just as well? You know, I think, and there, they are, there's trainings, you know, the ADA and APA did trainings for therapists who are specializing and working with, with families with type one. Um, so I think they can provide certainly, you know, expert, um, advice and professional and psychological support. Mm -hmm. I know that particularly with, with teens, it brings, um, I can validate what they are going through and they can, they understand that I really get it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an extra value add for me just personally and working with particularly the teenage population. Um, which was different from maybe someone who say like, gosh, I really, you know, I, I don't get what you're going through, but I know it's hard. Yeah. Um, but I think, yes, I certainly there are therapists out there who are excellent, who are trained well, who can provide the support you need, who do not have type one, but it, it, it can't, it can't help with certain populations. And for people mm-hmm. who do try therapy and like my son, they're like, why do I have to take the vitamin D every day or every other day or whatever? Like, uh, how much time do you give it before it builds up some efficacy for you? Like, you can't just go mm-hmm. to one session and be like, that's it. I should feel differently. Right. And how long until you know if this therapist that you chose isn't right for you? Like, what's that that soaking in period like in the beginning? That's a great question. And I often tell my clients, you know, it it has to be a bright fit for both parties. Um and usually I, I often suggest or encourage them to, to give it a go at least two times, mm-hmm. um, two sessions and to see how, cause then usually the first session there's maybe a lot of nerves and just kind of general overview of what therapy looks like and feels like. So I'd say by two or two, if not by three sessions, you aren't feeling like your therapist is either meeting your needs or understanding your goals, then it's okay to, to move on. Um, and in terms of experiencing efficacy or some change or hope that there's going to be change, um, I often suggest 10, roughly, you know, 10 sessions, three months, um, to not only work on building the rapport and trust and identify, and then identifying the goals, where do we want to go? What's our hope? And then at the kind of approximate three to four month mark to take a pause and evaluate, okay, are we, are we going in the right direction? Are you feeling like your needs are being met? These are questions I'd be asking my client. Um, And then 
by then, by the three to then six, six month mark, I, I would hope that my client is, um, is experiencing some change. Oftentimes the, the, you might hear a therapist say it might feel worse before it gets better, which that, that often happens if you're doing a lot of trauma work. Mm -hmm. And if you're processing maybe the grief around the diagnosis that you have never done, that could feel maybe painful at first, but then the hope is that you would transition slowly into receiving and experiencing healing around that okay. and moving into maybe more acceptance and hope. So that's kind of a general guideline um, timeframe, but you know, every, every client is different, but I'd say on average, that's, that's what happens. I appreciate that. I just wouldn't want somebody to just do it and then leave and go, well, I'm not all, I don't feel perfect. Like this didn't work. And I can imagine everything you said and all the different possibilities being true for somebody. So I, I want just like a general guideline for them to think. Yes. About. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It, it does. It does take time to, yeah. to undo, you know, your thinking or your, and, and move to healing. Yeah. Right. Well, listen, it's all just our parents fault. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. <Yeah>. sometimes. <laughs> well, I really appreciate uh, you doing this again. Um, and, and I will, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. First things first, let's thank Dexcom and that G6 continuous glucose monitor and remind you to go to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. Are you looking for a free, no obligation demo of the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump or perhaps a free 30 day trial of the Omnipod dash? Hello, 30 days. That's one twelfth of a year. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Go find out what you can get. Head over there. It's like one of those crane machines and somebody already dropped the quarter in. All you got to do is move the joystick around and see what you get. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Don't forget T1DExchange.org forward slash juice box. And of course, thank you so much to Erica for coming on the show. There are links in the show notes to all the sponsors and a link to Erica if you're in California and you'd like to check her out. Thanks so much for listening, for the great reviews you've been leaving on your podcast players, and of course, for sharing the show with other people. I really appreciate it when you do that and when you hit subscribe in your podcast app. I think I just decided how to celebrate 3 million downloads too. Let me take a look here just real quickly. I won't keep you much longer. You're fine. This one was only an hour. You can do it. Hang in. When are we going to hit 3 million? Uh, rough math. About a month from now. About a month from now, the show is going to hit 3 million lifetime downloads, which is very, very, very cool and extremely exciting. And I think I know what I'm going to do to celebrate it. Um, I think I'm going to make a, I don't want to say yet, but I'm going to do something and we'll see if you like it. I always do giveaways and I have to be honest, then only one person gets something and that doesn't seem very celebratory. So I'm going to try to find a way where everybody can have the same thing. Um, We'll see. I'm trying to figure it out. Give me a second, okay? I'll be back soon. Three million. It's a big deal, by the way. <laughs> it's a podcast about type 1 diabetes. Three million downloads? Are you kidding me? I can have four million probably in... I think we definitely hit four million this year. Easy. It's just... It's crazy. I never imagined. First month, uh, 2015, January. 1,200 like, downloads or something like that. In a month. I don't know. I can't even tell you how many downloads I get in a month now. Trade secret. But it's a lot. And I wonder if I can find.
Hmm. Hold on a second. Can I find out exactly how many downloads the podcast had in the first month? I can. I just have to change this to January. If you're still with me, I love you guys. Thanks so much. Uh, it's actually March. So I started the show in January, but I didn't start it on a service where I could track downloads. I was, uh, I did not know what I was doing. Let's just be fair and say that. Um, so maybe March 24th is the first trackable download. So we'll, when we, when we do April, even though the show started in January, I just didn't know what I was doing in January. Um, yeah, I can do this. Hold on a second. I know you're like, I already held on a second, Scott. What the hell? But give me a second. Uh, make it the, how many days are in April? Is it 31 or 30? I do into December, maple moon and December. I don't even know that rhyme. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. What are you going to do? Uh, April 1st to May 1st monthly totals. Wow, this is crazy. There were days when the show only got 100 downloads a day. Some days it had like 43. That's so weird. Look at this. April, do you care about this? April 1st, 2015, 33 downloads. The second, nine. The third, four. On the 4th, it had 18. All right, now just imagine I go forward a day every time I say a number. 6, 10, 34. What even made me keep doing this? Uh, 109, 133, 46, 17, 16, 27, 90, 102, 152, 43. I'm like halfway through April, not 26, 26. Wow, 57, 24. That's how the whole month goes, just like that. For, for perspective. Here. For perspective, since I started talking about how many downloads there were in April... Until now, <laughs> the show's been downloaded 203 times while we were just talking about it. That's crazy, isn't it? It still freaks me out. Um, anyway, I'm feeling very celebratory about it. And I've run, I want, I've want, I sound, did you hear me there? I was like Count Dracula. I was like, I want to tell you about the thing. I want to celebrate somehow. So I think I have an idea. People online help me with what they want. I'm going to put it together. I should be able to announce it very, very soon. It's not that exciting, but I think you'll like it. And um, that's it. All right. We excited? Good. I want to do the thing. Like I turned into Dracula from a 50s movie there for a second. Anyway, wasn't Erica great while we're still chatting? I love her. She's coming back again. I'm going to make her come back. I can't actually make her. That's not how the world works. But I asked her and she said yes already. So she's coming back. Oh, oh, one last thing. I was supposed to put this at the front of the show. Uh, I'll do that next time. Uh, each episode has transcripts now at juiceboxpodcast.com. So many people ask me for transcripts, and it was a ton of work and not fun, but they're there. They're there. Ugh, I hate it when I say that. 
but they're on juiceboxpodcast.com now. So you go to the specific episode link for the episode you're listening to. You scroll down a little bit. Oh, Christ, let me look. I didn't mean to curse. Hold on. Juiceboxpodcast.com. Scroll down. Like, here's the last episode, uh, Falling Forward, number 444. I click on it. The episode page comes up. Scroll down. Tells you a little bit about the episode. Shows you some places you can listen on different apps. You can actually listen right there. There's a player. Uh, Then it says, click for episode transcript. This is above um, the sponsor. So if you get to the sponsors, Dexcom, Touch by Type 1, Omnipod, T1D Exchange, Gvoke Glucagon, and the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter, (laughs) you've scrolled down too far. Scroll back up to where it says, click for episode transcript. When you click on that, it opens up. Words everywhere. Now, there's a tiny disclaimer at the top, and I'll tell you why. Because the transcripts are the transcripts are being done with artificial intelligence. So they're not perfect. So it just says, this text is the output of an AI-based transcribing from an audio recording. Although the transcript is largely accurate, in some cases, it is incomplete or inaccurate due to inaudible passages or transcript errors. It should not be treated as an authoritative record. Nothing that you read here constitutes medical advice, blah, blah, blah. And then it's a transcript. Scott Benner, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 444. Me, talky, talky, all of a sudden, Jeff comes up. My name is Jeff. I'm 34 years old, and I've been typing. Every episode has this. There's a couple that have it that don't have it still. If you find one that doesn't, please email me and let me know. But otherwise, to all of the people out there that ask for transcripts, they're there. Go get them. I, I hope they make your life better. I sincerely do. That's definitely it now. Now I'm going. Bye.